many of our team patients have been Narcan'd. Many of our team patients have been to jail. They've been institutionalized and that's not kept them sober. But what does keep them sober is when they see a young person who is enjoying life, who is able to have recovery. Welcome to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy, where education meets recovery. Archway is a sober high school in the sunny heart of Houston, Texas. We meet the individual educational needs of teens recovering from substance use disorder with care, compassion, respect, and rigor. Archway is the largest recovery high school in the nation, and we are here to remind you that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. This is A Way Through. Welcome to another episode of A Way Through. I'm your host today, Jamie Edwards, the Director of Community Relations for Archway Academy. Our message today on A Way Through is that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. There is a way through teen substance use and mental and behavioral health issues. We invite you to subscribe, like, or share our podcast because it helps students and worried families in the throes of teenage substance use to hear viable options for restoring their families and their child's physical, mental, emotional, and academic health. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. You can also follow us on Instagram at Archway Academy and on Facebook at Archway Academy HTX. On today's show, I'm joined by Erin Goodhart, the Executive Director of Four Programming with Karen Treatment Centers in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Erin. Good morning, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're thrilled to have you. So part of the work that you do at Karen involves teens. Can you tell us about Karen and the programs that y'all do with teens and adults? Sure. So in our Pennsylvania location, we treat teens, young adults, adult patients, and actually older adult patients as well. One of the things that we have found is that having them separated out by age, has really been effective in them building positive peer supports and being able to provide treatment modalities that um, sort of meet their developmental needs. So in our teen programs, we treat ages 14 up until 18 and in high school. Um, We do have an educational component where our uh, patients can continue with their studies. We have a school on campus I know that's really important to a lot of caregivers that their children are able to continue with their education. And also for a lot of the patients that we see, they want to be able to graduate and kind of move on to that next level of life as well. Our young adult program is generally 18 and out of high school up until about 23 or 24, depending on, you know, kind of where they are in their life. If they're living on their own, supporting themselves, graduated from college, we might look at them in one of our adult programs. Adult programs are generally 24, we usually say up until 64, 65, but really what we're looking at with that is what are their physical limitations, how how has their substance use or mental health concerns impacted their cognitive abilities. So really at Karen, we, you know, it's funny, I know a lot of programs say it, but we really do personalize just where they are physically, developmentally, cognitively, so that we make sure that we are providing them with the best treatment that they can get. 
That's fantastic. So for our listeners, whether uh, you're a teen or whether you're an adult and you have a loved one, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, we highly recommend Karen in Pennsylvania. It's a way to get out of the state too, which can be great. Sometimes we need our loved ones to go out of state and just have a, a different scenery and a different point of view. Can you kind of talk about the importance of that for treatment? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I would be remiss if I also didn't mention that we do have a program in Florida also, which I know can be, you know, a little more geographically friendly. We only treat 18 and above in that program, um, but we have professional programs down there. We have, you know, some people say uh, failure to launch. I really look at it more like a delayed launching. You know, I think failure just carries so much stigma with it. And is if they've done something wrong and the truth is with substance use and uh, mental health concerns, it's not a choice. So it's not like a choice right. to fail. They're really just, you know, kind of delayed in that process for any number of reasons. But I would say that one of the things that we have found is, especially for our teen patients, oftentimes having some of that distance between their family, their friends, kind of the environment that they're comfortable in, that they really know how to navigate can be helpful. And it's also you know, I want to acknowledge that it can be very anxiety provoking for the families. You know, if I think of, uh, you know, I have a 16 year old I'm from Texas and I'm contemplating sending them to Pennsylvania for treatment, I, c- I could imagine as a parent, that would be really scary as well. But the reality is, is for most of our young people, they thrive or are able to um, kind of grow in environments that are different for them. And it builds resiliency and all those different components. Also, from a real logistical issue, there's less of a chance that they're going to try to elope treatment and go home. <laughs> yes, yes, which is a real factor for teens. I have an adult child, and I know the listeners hear me say this quite a lot, but it's always usually relevant to what we're talking about. It's not just teens that try to elope. Many people try to leave treatment after maybe detox or after a couple of days, and it's very hard for loved ones. When they call us and contact us and they tell us that they don't feel good or they miss us or all, there's been a hundred things that I've heard as to why my daughter needed to leave the facility and we love them and we don't want them to feel the feelings that they're feeling. And so as family members, we can do things under the guise of guilt and label it as love that, that can be devastatingly harmful for our loved one, but for ourselves as well. And I know we're going to talk about families and kind of get into that. That's a meat of some of what we're going to talk about today. So can we circle back to that? Absolutely. Okay. So today we're going to talk about mental health challenges among teens and the importance of treating co-occurring disorders, as well as uh, family members and the role they have, because substance use is a family systems disorder. And one of the things I love uh, about what you guys do, and especially the work that you're so passionate about, is not singularly focusing on the individual that identifies as the person with substance use disorder, but also equally identifying what it is that the family is going through and the ways that we, both the individual and the family, can support one another and get healthy together. So I'm very excited to jump into this. I always like to ask what it is that brought our guest to where they are and what they're doing. So do you have a story behind that? 
I grew up around recovery. I grew up, you know, as a kid going to AA functions to going to, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, you know, on New Year's Eve, they had things called alcathons where you would go and that would be like your New Year's Eve party. So we grew up talking about substance use. We grew up knowing what recovery meant. And actually the way that I found my way to Karen. So I've lived about 45 minutes away from Karen and never knew it existed. But when I was graduating with my bachelor's degree, I had, um, you know, some family who was in treatment there. And I was like, all right, I'm going to give this a go. So I, uh, I'll never forget uh, my interview at, at Karen. I interviewed for a uh, second shift counselor assistant position with the adolescent boys and girls, you know, so I went in there at 20 years old, and some of these uh, patients were two years younger than I was, but I was familiar with mental health treatment with substance treatment with the language with the difficulties that come along with that. And I really I fell in love with working with this population. And then, you know, as I kind of grew up professionally, personally, Um, I started working, you know, with more of the families, some adult patients. And I think one of the things that keeps me excited is every year we have a reunion and uh, it's one of those moments that just, you know, kind of brings tears to my eyes every time I go, because you see a 16 year old girl come back, who's got a year sober, a year and a half sober, two years, three years, eventually, you know, I've been at Karen since 2004. So I see some of these I call them kids, but I see some of these teenage patients coming back and they have their own family. And I'm able to see them not have the shame and the embarrassment and the fear around saying I'm a person in recovery. And it's like truly, truly one of those moments that I'm like, this is why it works. And I often will say to teen patients, like, I can't scare you into recovery. I can't, you know, some of you people are going to say that, you know, if you keep using your Dale's institutions in death, right? The truth is many of our teen patients have been narcan Many of our teen patients have been to jail. They've been institutionalized and that's not kept them sober. But what does keep them sober is when they see a young person who is enjoying life, who is able to have recovery, who, and, and it's not to say that it's perfect all the time because our, our, our alumni do talk about their struggles and that's part of life and we all deal with it, but they can be sort of that beacon of hope. And as therapists, and family and friends, we can also be that beacon of hope of like, yes, this does work. Yes. So I love you sharing that. And working here at Archway, I, I'm our listeners can't see me, but I'm just nodding my head, nodding my head because we have those same feelings here at Archway. It's just amazing. It's amazing. And I think oftentimes getting sober for anyone finding recovery and you know the the continuum of recovery is long like there's many phases to it and there's and there's many ways to do it but recovery is never for the faint of heart it is a struggle and when you think that a 15 a 14 whatever the age is 16 17 18 you know one of the ways that that I can relate is I have an affinity for chocolate and sugar. And I think at 55 to be told that I could never have chocolate again is just, it's too much. It's too much to think that if I were to put chocolate in my body, that that could have negative consequences. And so to think that an 18 year old or younger has the courage to say, 
I will abstain from drugs and alcohol because that is what is best for me. And they're able to develop that self-awareness and they're able to develop the tools and the resources to build a life on that is literally unbelievable. It's just unbelievable to us, but we see it happen all the time. And we're just so, we're so proud of our kids and their families. And and I know you are of your alumni that come back through there too. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes the young people that we work with don't give themselves the credit that they deserve for many of our patients come into treatment because they got in trouble at school or with the sports team or with their parents. So they do come in with that external motivators. And what we see though, is that the more they're with a peer group that is, you know, sort of excited about recovery, the more that they have activities that show them that yes, you can go to the park and do Frisbee golf without drinking or being high. You can do your academics without using. I think that those are those moments that give them that internal self-esteem and that belief that they can do this. And then when they have adults, therapists, you know, techs, whatever, supporting them in that, it it does kind of increase that internal self-esteem and self-worth. And I'm not saying that that's true for every patient that we see. I wish it were. I have this firm belief that even if it's one day in their treatment with us, that they're excited about recovery, you know, we have planted a seed you know, and I'll talk with our young people when they relapse and they're like, you know, I remember my therapist's face as soon as I picked back up, or I remember that DBT skill that we learned or, you know, so it's not for nothing and it is a process and it doesn't end with, you know, 28 days of treatment or, you know, recovery high school. Right. That's so true. And two things in there that I, that I'd like to tease out. Number one is I I remember the first treatment center that my daughter went to And believing, and I've I've said this on here before, believing, okay, well, so this is going to be over. She's going to come back and she's going to be fixed. And I air quotes fixed. And, and we'll just, you know, it was a blip, but we'll get on with our life. And, you know, that that's not how it works. And for some, and there are one and done and, and they are able to do that. But for many, it is a journey. And the important thing that I think for for families who experienced what I did and think, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I spent all that money. How could they come back and not be fixed? Uh, You know, I've said before, if I brought my car into the mechanic and he gave it back and it wasn't fixed, I'd have a problem with the mechanic. (laughs) But a car and a human being are two entirely separate things. What we can hold on to as family members is knowing That in whatever way we help our loved one and ourselves toward recovery, seeds are being planted that can take hold later. They may not take hold in the immediate, but the seeds are being planted and that is invaluable. Yeah. And I think the other part of that, when I, when I talk with family members, and I think that many programs that are reputable and able to be honest will say, this is really the beginning of a a journey. And I think if we as providers, as family members can really understand that going into the situation, it does help that, you know, I might have a phone call with my team one day and and he sounds, you know, like everything's going great. And the next day he's having a, a more difficult day. That doesn't mean 
that the previous day didn't happen. It means that right. he is a normal teenager who's developmentally, you know, emotions run wild. Um, right. And the job of the caregiver then is also to be able to be that kind of even keel for them. Um, but I do think it's about being realistic in terms of what recovery looks like, whether you're 15 or 55, it's, it's still a process. And that's why we really, you know, when you're thinking about a team coming into recovery, it's really about that continuum of care. It's about, you know, starting in a residential program, if that's what's appropriate, and moving into, you know, either a sober high school or a sober dorm or, you know, those next steps. That's also a scary proposition for, for our patients and for the family members to think, you know, all right, so I send my loved one into residential treatment after 28 days, they say, oh, they need to go to the, the sober high school or the sober dorm or the sober living house. And, and, and that can leave family members feeling really out of control also. Um, so I think it's important to validate both of those experiences and, and not that one needs to have sort of more weight than the other, but both are true at the same time. Yeah, they are. And I think, you know, to talk about the letting go piece, sometimes family members are encouraged so often to let go, let go. I believe that letting go does not mean letting go of our loved one. It means letting go of the outcomes, never letting go of our loved ones, but learning to let go of the outcomes and what that's going to feel like for us as parents and loved ones is shame, guilt, fear, and those are part of our recovery journey and learning how to live in the space of fear, shame, and guilt and us doing our work. And that's, again, not for the faint of heart. That is hard work because parents, and I'm a little biased, especially moms, are wired that our job is to whatever is necessary to take care of our kids and protect them from, we can do all that we can to love well, and we can do all that we can to teach preventative measures, but substance use disorder and addiction is not something that we can protect our loved ones from, but we can, we can have faith that Karen, Archway, that there are professionals and institutions out there that we can lean into that, that can offer that. And so the other thing that I wanted to tease out that you were saying that's so important, and it, it's a key component of us here at Archway, is we are here to provide a sober, supportive environment for our kids to be able to continue both their education and their recovery. So we want to do one thing really well, and that's offer education. During the eight-hour day, we have a four-member recovery support therapeutic team that our kids have access to all eight hours of the day. Very important. But we are not their primary care specialist. They have to find that outside of us. And so what we do is we partner with area alternative peer groups. And that is a big component here in Houston for the adolescent recovery community. Mm -hmm steeped in um, alternative peer groups. And so our kids and their families have to participate in that for them to attend Archway. We, we have a tuition, but we never turn kids away because of money. We find a way to scholarship. We find a way to get them here. But we will turn a family away if they will not be involved in an alternative peer group. For those of you who might not have listened to an episode before, alternative peer groups are exactly what Aaron was saying. 
there are opportunities for both the teen and the families to have uh, social groups where they can do normal teen stuff, normal family activities with other families that are in the same position, other teens that want to go play, you know, disc golf or want to go to the movies or want to go summer camping, whatever it is, our alternative peer groups do that. And they offer uh, therapy for the teens and they offer it for the families. Is that something that you guys have up in Pennsylvania? I, I feel compelled. I need to go back to something you said earlier. I love the way that you described a parent's experience when their t- child goes into treatment. And the way that you spoke about that is one of the things that I often will talk about when I'm doing speaking engagements is that sometimes we pathologize the reactions of parents when the truth is their reaction as a parent is a very normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Yes. Um, And I, you know, as you were talking, it like gave me goosebumps to hear being able to identify the guilt, the fear, the shame, the um, lack of control. And I think as caregivers, when we can start to use that language with our kids, as opposed to trying to control them or trying to control the treatment program, which we've seen quite a bit also, when we can just say, I am really scared when you don't call me for five days. And let it lie. Um, because then it's not trying to put some feeling or some response on the child, but it's about the caregiver, the adult really owning their experience. And part of, I think, where we've gotten lost in this is that as parents or caregivers, we could more effectively give our kids a language to describe what's happening for them. You know, I have an eight year old and 11 year old. There are times when I will see my son just shut down. And my, you know, some people might be like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Tell me what's going on. But it's more like, all right, but when I see that happen for you, I feel really out of control and I feel like I need to do something to fix this for you. And he'll mm-hmm. say, mom, you don't. And, and then we can have more of a conversation. But as caregivers, all we can do is be honest with our feelings and make sure that we're not using that as a way to try to control or manipulate our kids, which yes. we all do at times too. But I just, I wanted to go back to that because the way you said that was the way that I, I, I would like caregivers and family members and friends, you know, even when you're supporting somebody who's going through their child struggling with mental health or substance use disorders, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard why I've been told I need to give them tough love, but what does that even mean? Or I've been told I need to set boundaries. What does that mean? The the amount of times I've said, you know, families have asked me, should I kick them out of my house? Well, that's a great question. I can't answer that for you. Can you tolerate the outcome if you do that? Right. You know, so I think sometimes well-intended advice or, and sometimes unsolicited advice or feedback can, can add to that stigma and shame that families already feel when their young person is struggling with mental health or addiction. So I really just wanted to move back to that because I appreciated the way that you said that. Thank you. And, I, and I'm so glad that you did. Obviously, families are a real passion of mine, I just because it's my story. And I think, you know, first of all, for our listeners who, who may not have heard me say this, I cannot, I cannot promote enough The Journey of the Heroic Parent by Dr. Brad Reedy. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Great book. Great book. And one of, one of 
the key takeaways that I take from Dr. Reedy is that unbeknownst to me, my underdeveloped sense of self, okay, was leading me to over-identify as my daughter's mom, as my daughter's hope, as my daughter's higher power, as whatever it was, I was over-identifying as a mother and not identifying with self. And so in the beginning, I would use, this is how I'm feeling, not as a neutral phrase to just be open. I was using it as a form of manipulation. I'm feeling this way. Therefore, you need to X, Y, and Z because you're making mom not be able to sleep at night. I can't eat. I can't think. I'm having trouble at work. That's all your fault. And as I say all that, I just, I cringe at the responsibility that I was laying on my daughter who is already struggling with her own mental, physical, emotional disorder. And I'm just piling on. And that's not because I didn't love my daughter. She's my only child. I, I love her beyond reason, but I didn't have the sense of self and I didn't have the tools and I didn't have the knowledge to self-regulate. You know what has never helped me learn those? Shame and blame. It's never going to help my daughter get sober. And those are never going to help me to have a better sense of self. So I love that you acknowledge that for family members and that, that you give us a pass on our recovery and that it's a process and it's a journey and we take two steps back and are two steps forward, three steps back. It's a, just a journey. And I think one of the greatest things for us is, as family members is learning a sense of self and learning that boundaries are the end of me, not a way to manipulate my daughter. Like it's not for me, and I'd love to hear you share on this. For me, it's not so much what I'm doing. It's why I'm doing it. Why have I set a boundary? Is it for me and my self-betterment? Or is it, I'm going to kick you out because I'm hoping that will make you stop. Or I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because that is another attempt at trying to get you to stop. Share on that a little bit, if you don't mind. And really just one of the things I wanted to get to is your thoughts on the important role of family and treatment and recovery. And then also there are families who, you know, fair enough, say my teen's problems are not my problems. My kid ingests alcohol or drugs. I don't. Or if I do have wine at night or a bourbon, like I, I have one or two and then I stop. So my drinking, not drinking has no impact on my kid. So that's two different things. Again, important role of family and treatment and recovery. And then thoughts on helping families who, who maybe initially don't want to make any changes. So at Karen, we do require our teen families to attend our family education program. And right now what we're offering, you know, of course, COVID has shifted everything. We're hopeful to get back to sort of what we were doing previously, but currently for our teen patients, um, we offer a family education program every week. 
And what we're really focusing on is really looking at teens as teenagers in terms of development, in terms of normal social behaviors, in terms of peer environments. Because one of the things that I've seen happen is teens get treated like tiny adults and they're not. So we're really looking at how does teen substance use impact brain development, impact social development, impact emotional development. Um, Because sometimes what the family see is they're using, I want them to stop. But what we really want to talk about is how that substance impacts behaviors, how it impacts emotional responses. And to your point, actually, a large part of our family education is not about their patient at all. It's about themselves. So all of our teen patients, family members are given a 28-day challenge that focuses on them. It has nothing to do with their loved one, um, but it really is what does self-care look like for me as a parent? One of the things that we talk a lot about is self-care isn't necessarily going to a spa or going out golfing with the guys, but you know, self-care can be, I'm going to take five minutes and sit out on the deck and do some deep breathing. I think families and, and caregivers get overwhelmed because they hear from their provider, you have to have self-care. They don't even know what that is. As you just said, you know, they've defined themselves so heavily as a caregiver that they don't even know what they like. You know, dinner isn't what do I want? It's what do you want for to dinner? Where do you want to go out to eat? What do you want to do today? So when we talk about self-care with our families, we're talking about, you know, buy yourself a nice journal and do a gratitude list every night. You don't want to go buy a journal, pick up some loose leaf paper, five things you're grateful for each day. Go for a 10 minute walk, sit down and truly talk to your partner for three minutes, you know, so it's, it's building these things in that help family members to also start to identify what am I feeling? Um, we talk a lot with our families. What are your triggers? Because if you think that your 16 year old is going to text you at 10 o'clock every night, cause you've asked them to, that's not likely going to happen. And that's going to be really triggering for you. And how are you going to respond to that? Again, yeah. it's a normal teenage behavior. We look at what is a realistic aftercare plan. I'm sure you could, you know, preach the choir on this too, but, you know, really helping them to understand that they're going to need, uh, some of our folks are going to need a sober high school or a sober dorm or a sober college experience and helping them to see that it can be fun and it can be exciting. One of the, my most rewarding moments ever in working with teen family, teenage patients and their families is we had a group of teen girls and at Karen, we do a lot of dialectical behavioral therapy skills. We do skills groups, we do homework groups, they practice them the whole nine yards because it's a evidence-based treatment. And so we had our patients who are going to be going out on pass with their loved one. And so the girls actually taught their family members a DBT skill. They taught them some emotional regulation skills. They did little survival packs. They went out on paths. And it was amazing to see these young ladies who were able to teach their parents something. And you talk about building that internal self-esteem and that like knowing who I am as a person. That was one of those moments in time where they got to be the teacher for their parent. And then we came back and the parents processed, uh, you know, when your daughter got up and went to the bathroom in the restaurant, let's talk about what you felt, what you thought, were you able to use any of your skills? And so on the other side, it was really nice for the girls to see like, wow, my parents are willing to try something that's like they got out their stress ball in the middle of the restaurant or, you know what I mean? Like stuff that, that you wouldn't think that they would have thought wasn't kind of in their wheelhouse or something they'd be willing to do. Along with that is, 
you know, we do encourage our families as well to have their own support system, whether that's a 12-step program, whether that's a church or a gym or a yoga studio or some sort of alternative support. We do encourage that. Um, and we really want to provide common language um, for everybody to use in the house. And I think you know, once they're able to develop their own support system and understand that them just focusing on their teenager isn't going to get them well or get them sick, uh, they do have this opportunity to develop what their boundaries are going to look like. I mean, that's like the number one question we get from family members. So we do a lot of value-based boundary setting. You know, I value respect. So, you know, I value respect. And um, when I'm not being spoken to respectfully, I'm going to remove myself from the situation and come back 10 minutes later. As you mentioned, it's not about manipulation or an attempt to control. And again, I'm not saying that that's negative because, you know, it's it's a survival skill for the families also. Right. But really looking at why am I setting a boundary and what are my hopes in setting the boundary? What is it that what is my need? What is not being met that I'm trying to get? And then. You know, I'll just mention about family members that are uncomfortable with changing their own behaviors or really looking at, you know, how their responses may negatively impact the recovery process. You know, those are the situations that pull at my heartstrings every time. We've had some patients and the families are like, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to stop using. I'm not going to stop drinking. Ironically or interestingly, those are often the kids that really want to get well and see the benefit. And and oftentimes I'm sure it's because they don't want to repeat that family history. You know, they want to, they don't want that to be their legacy. You know, so I think one of the things that we often start with is, you know, looking at if, if they're not able or willing to follow recommendations how are they going to kind of create the safest environment that they can? And what does a contingency plan look like? Again, I, you know, we just, just with the, as it is with the substance user or someone who has mental health concerns, us trying to scare them into recovery is not going to be effective. And the same is going to be true for family. But we will, you know, we will say like, what are, what is a change that you're willing to make? Um, and, and it might be something as simple as, you know, our patients are allowed to call home to their families one time per week when they first arrive and they gain additional privileges to the phone. But, you know, it might be as simple as if you're at a picnic and you've been drinking, just don't answer the phone. Like that's an appropriate way you can support your child. That's pretty non-confrontational that, you know, they feel comfortable with. The other thing that I will say to families, and you kind of touched on this earlier, is that, you know, if you go to your mechanic and the, the car doesn't get fixed, you may have set with the mechanic. Um, one of the things that I try to look at with family members is, you know, if your child had some other cancer or some other disease that needed to be treated, and they were like, look, you're going to have to get rid of the dryer sheets in your house. And you're going to have to use non, you know, uh, scented detergents. And you're going to have to do these things. Would you be willing to make those changes? often families are going to say yes. Um, and so what I'll say is for a period of time, can you make these changes? I'm not talking forever and ever, but I'm talking for the next, you know, several months. Can you make some changes? If you can't, let's provide you some resources too, so that you can get some support around that. And that seems to be a pretty non-confrontational way. I have found that when we kind of lock horns with families, that's when, when none of us are winning then. But I think if we can give some incremental changes that they can make, that tends to to be less overwhelming for them. 
That's excellent. And such great examples, because as we said earlier, shaming and blaming parents doesn't work any better than shaming and blaming our loved ones. So I love that grace and that space. In one of our previous episodes, uh, we talked to a therapist here, Melanie Flint with Gym Counseling, and she kind of touches on what you said about what happens when Obviously, substance use is a family systems issue. So when an individual, whoever that may be, the teen, the adult, whoever it is in the family, begins to struggle with substance use or a mental health issue, it it offsets the homeostasis of the family and it dysregulates the family. But as the individual begins to heal, then things begin to normalize again. But when the individual heals, but the family does not, we're still stuck in that dysregulated state. What I heard you say is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys really work kind of through the stages of change with families. Like, where are you at? What are you willing to do? And, you know, that's such an important component in recovery for anyone and recovery from anything. Like, what can you do? right here, right now. I, I love that you guys do that. I want to ask you too, we've, we've got just a couple of minutes left, but I think it's really important to address specifically the rise in mental health challenges for teens and the importance of, of treating these co-occurring issues. Like here at Archway, we have kids that are here for substance use. Um, We have kids that are here that have never touched a substance. They're here for an eating disorder, or maybe they struggle with gaming, or they have a very severe generalized anxiety disorder. We have, we're a mental health school that believes in the model of recovery from whatever. We do have a lot of kids that maybe struggle with an eating disorder and a substance use, or they have severe anxiety and they've been using substance as a key. And, you know, that's, that's come up in multiple previous podcasts, thinking of of one in, in particular with Dean Porterfield from Arch Academy, where when we as loved ones can stop and look at what's happening with our identified individual, in this case, teens, and initially we think that just doesn't make sense. Like, why are they doing that? In many cases, it really does make sense. It makes sense why they're choosing a destructive path specifically to what they may be feeling or the challenges that they're facing. Just like, as you said earlier, it makes sense that a parent will respond in the way they do initially because they are feeling fear and shame and guilt and all those things. So that's a whole lot. So let me go back. Rise in mental health challenges among teens and the importance of treating the co-occurring issues. Because so many of our, our teens struggle with that. Yeah, that's a that's a great, you know, point. And because I've been in the field for so long, I've been privileged to see that evolution that has occurred over time. I still think we have a long way to go. However, you know, I remember a time at Karen where if you had almost any other co-occurring disorder, it was like, we need mental health treatment first. You need eating disorder treatment first. You need, you know, to address whatever other issue first. I think as a 
field, we have come a really long way in recognizing that we cannot address these issues in silos because they are so closely connected. Yes. Um, and one of, one of the things that I have really, um, so at Karen, we also have a trauma track for our patients who come in with trauma histories. And, and again, the evolution in the field is what's traumatic to me might not be traumatic to somebody else. And so we're really able to help people understand their symptoms of trauma and also the way that they have coped with their trauma symptoms. You know, I think part of what we see with our teen patients is their substance use may begin as a way to manage their mental health symptoms, their family dynamics, their trauma symptoms. And unfortunately, what happens is over time, the brain changes. And, you know, the old saying, once you, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can't go back to being a cucumber, right? Right. But I think for a lot of our, our young people, helping them to understand that, yes, your substances probably were a way that you survived your life. You know, I, I listen to some of these stories and I'm like, I just don't even know how you got through that. And the reality is, though, is that, that they got through it through things like self-injury, through things like substance use, through eating disorders, through checking out, through gaming and media. The other side of that, though, is that we want you to thrive in life. We don't want you to constantly be in survival mode. And so in order to adequately address anxiety, depression, trauma, eating disorders, you know, and the, and the list goes on, one of the things that we have found is that if there is a substance in place, that's often going to go back to that. That's the way that they're going to cope. And so being able to take the substance away and acknowledging to them that it is going to be difficult. You know, this, this whole conversation has kind of come full circle, right? Like it's going to be tough in the beginning and we want to acknowledge that and own it. And like, you're going to be in fight, flight, or freeze. You're going to be wanting to leave treatment and, and that, you know, I promise you, if you can get through this period, you will feel better on the other side when you have some distance between you and your last use, when you've had some other coping skills, when you've had uh, peers who are like, yeah, I know what that feels like. I've been there. When you have uh, treatment providers and families who can validate your experience, but we can no longer treat teens in little silos of, of you know, go get that eating disorder addressed, um, go get that substance use, go get that gaming issue because they are so intertwined. And I think especially, you know, with COVID, some of the teenage patients that we've seen, they started, you know, the, the families believed like my, my teenager is getting the substances from school or from the sports team. Well, guess what? When they're coming in, they're saying, I know where dad keeps his pot. I know where mom hides her wine. I know where, you know, the uh, Xbox controller was hidden. So I think that really rocked families world also of like, oh my gosh, they are getting it from me. And then the other thing is some of our, I mean, I don't know, I can speak to the Northeast. Their treatment for teen patients is scarce right now. And so the accessibility, the availability of providers, many of our family members want in-person services. They, they want to be able to see somebody, hear somebody, have eyes on them. And there's still a lot of programs that are virtual. And I think that's really continued this challenge that we're seeing with our teen young adult people. You know, and there are some that are comfortable, you know, doing telemedicine, but there are some who want to see somebody and, and be able to get out of the house and connect. There's so many factors that have played into this. And I always like to say, though, that there is hope that our young people can recover. And, you know, I don't know that we've seen the lasting effects of COVID and quarantines and the pandemic yet. 
Uh, but what I do know is that when I see our young people walk through our front doors, they have moments of hope and moments of like belly laughter. Like, you know, we have this one, our, our head of research, and when she does group with our young lady, she brings her ukulele and the girls love it. And it's like, there's these moments of, of joy that you see in these young people that, that, you know, makes it worth it and gives me hope for the future. That is amazing. That is a great way to bring a close to the segment and just a, a high note to leave with families and parents and our listeners that there is hope, that there's always hope. I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom and your insight. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been a true, true pleasure for me too. And I'm grateful. So before you go, it's really important to us that um, everyone know how to find you. So how can people find Karen Treatment? Uh, maybe in social media, a website. Can you share that with us? Sure. So our website is www.karen.org. It's C-A-R-O-N.org. Um, and you can find us on Facebook as well. Very good. Okay. Any final comments, thoughts? I don't think I have anything. Just, you know, I, I'm always a big fan of, of leaving people with just that recovery works from mental health, from substance use, that family recovery works. And, and even if a parent's worst case scenario, biggest nightmare, you know, their loved one, you know, doesn't survive through this disease, they can still also be a beacon of hope for other families. Um, you know, I've talked to family members and, and they've said, you know, I had three months where my person was sober and I got to talk to them every day, clear headed, you know, so I'm just a big fan that recovery works. It's possible. Uh, you know, our CEO right now is saying it, his kind of tagline is it's not only possible, but probable um, that recovery works. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And we're just grateful to have organizations like yours out there doing the work that you're doing for both the family members and the identified individual. Thank y'all so much. Sure, thank you. Thanks for listening to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy. The views and opinions expressed by our guests on today's episode are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of Archway Academy. To learn more about us and the topics we discussed, visit us at archwayacademy.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Archway Academy or on Facebook at Archway Academy HTX. Any links we mentioned and links to all of our guests on today's episode are just a tap away in the show notes. We look forward to meeting you here again on A Way Through.